0: you know, you wouldn't ask a kid who's doing his driver's ed test for the first time to call his mom and have a serious conversation, right? Like he'd be overwhelmed. He wouldn't be able to think about both. He'd, he'd be freaking out or he'd pull over or whatever. But if you have a guy that's 55 years old, who's, you know, putting taco sauce on his Taco Bell while talking to his wife and he's he's driving with his knee and he's going 90 down the highway, like he can do all these different things. But the main thing he's doing is driving, but he can now drive pretty subconsciously without a lot of thinking and and he can do other stuff. Right. So you got to kind of take that approach to baseball and athletics in general is, has the person perfected the skill yet? If they haven't perfected the skill, maybe they're not ready to be subconscious in the box or subconscious on the field. Now, obviously I still want them to be calm, but to, to perform in that flow state, you're really not ready until you physically mastered the game. And I want you to look at that runner as he's rounding the bases, and I want you to think about how you feel. And then I want you to think about how you're going to overcome that.
1: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the High School Coaches Club. I'm your host, Max Price. It's great to have you aboard as we embark on the 67th edition of this podcast. If you're listening to this on launch day or really close to it, we just hit a pretty big milestone this past Wednesday with the 75th High School Coaches Club newsletter hitting your inboxes. This project, the High School Coaches Club as a whole, has become a really neat part of my life, and hitting send on the 75th newsletter was pretty special for me personally. But my baby, my favorite, my bread and butter, and where it all started is this right here, the podcast. As always, thank you so much for clicking that play button. And a huge thank you to Will Miner and the gang over at Netting Pros for sponsoring the High School Coaches Club. If you need any facility improvements, make Netting Pros your first call. Not only will they help you design it, but they'll also do it all custom for you. From the fabrication to the installation, they've got you covered for netting, digital graphic wall padding, turf, turf protectors, cubbies, windscreen, ball carts, you name it. They crush the baseball and softball world on a daily basis, but they also get after it in football, soccer, lacrosse, track and field golf courses, and just about any sport you can imagine. They're truly making facilities better all across America, providing high-quality products and services for facilities, fields, courses, and stadiums throughout the country, not only at the high school level, but for recreational, collegiate, and pro sports as well. You can contact them today by calling eight four four six two zero two seven zero seven, 620 2707 info at nettingpros.com, visiting their website, nettingpros.com, or by checking them out on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn for all their latest products and projects. Netting Pros. They're improving programs one facility at a time. Today, I am joined by Josh Mickels. Back on February 6th, 2021, episode 18 with Kyle Mickels went live. And now some 17 months later, his brother, Josh, sat down with me to record episode 67. Back in February of 21, when that episode went live, Josh was not a coach. And I'm pretty sure he didn't have baseball coach anywhere in his plans. But after graduating from high school, he immediately joined the United States Marine Corps, where he worked his way up to an elite position, becoming team leader as a force recon scout sniper in the Marine special operations. 12 years later, a foot injury is bringing him to his medical retirement. As you'll hear in this conversation for that reason, and a couple of others, including just where he happened to live, he kind of accidentally became a division one college baseball coach, for the University of San Diego, where he just wrapped up his first year and helped them reach the NCAA regionals, where they play just down the road from me in Corvallis at Oregon State's Goss Stadium. Such a neat discussion here with Josh diving into his roles as the director of player development and mental skills coach. You're going to learn a ton of applicable ideas you can implement right away in any high school program, some of which go kind of against their traditional grain when it comes to mental skills, and I think you're going to like it. So, Let's do it. Let's dive in. It's episode 67 with Josh Mickles. All right. I'm joined by my second Mickles on the show. Uh, Josh, how are you? Good, good. Glad to be
0: here. Uh, thank you so much for having me on.
1: And you're coming in from uh, Lake Tahoe today for uh, a buddy's wedding. That's an exciting on-site deal.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't have had a better backdrop than doing a podcast with you, looking at some beautiful mountains. So great day. Great day to be alive. <laughs>
1: Very good. I was, uh, not to be creepy, but I, you know, trying to get some pictures put together and stuff to, um, Uh, promote the show when it comes time for that. And a bunch of pictures came up of you doing some really, at least cool looking stuff from the outside of like training and water submersion and uh, like on amphibious assault ships and obviously shooting uh, and just some really cool looking stuff, obviously for a guy who was not in the Marines like me. Um, When you kind of reflect back on all the time you've spent um, over these last 12 years in the Marines, uh, what are some of your like favorite experiences that you had?
0: You know, honestly, for me personally, it's been being challenged. Um, you know, I had a kind of a, uh, not a rough upbringing, but you know, in the conversation you have my older brother, you know, my, our parents got divorced. I was like 11 or 12, um, going through a hard time in my development as a young child, having to deal with that. And then kind of being a little bit of a punk going through my high school years, like most kids are, but maybe a little bit more of a chip on my shoulder and then getting into, and and things kind of always felt easy for me. Um, You know, and and, you know, I felt like I was always kind of naturally good at athletics, or you know, I could just cram for a test and pass. And it was just kind of, you know, I I I felt like I was, you know, a decent human being that just kind of can kind of coast through life. And it wasn't really, you know, I was an average person. It wasn't like I was a, you know, (laughs) going to be a pro athlete or a scholar or anything. And then I got to the Marine Corps, and my favorite thing about it over those twelve years is just I was constantly challenged. I was constantly put into my take it out of my comfort zone and forced to adapt and find ways to be successful. Um, and then, you know, I tried to join one of the most elite communities was fortunate enough to make it. And then, you know, get, got to spend uh, 12 years in that community. And, and we always have a saying, you know, earn your Jack. It's the recon Jack. It's like our emblem, our symbol, our symbol. It's earn your Jack every single day. Like, you know, you're always trying to do something for yourself or your brothers. That's going to make the institution or the team or whatever better, Um, and that's kind of been my biggest takeaway over the last 12 years is just that, that challenge. Now that I've kind of been out of it, um, I got hurt on my last deployment, a couple of bad surgeries and I'm going through a medical retirement. So I haven't really worked in about six months and, um, you know, which will get us later into the story and how it got to San Diego and, you know, just kind of missing that challenge. You know, USD kind of gave it to me, but you know, when it, when it's gone, when you realize like, man, how much you kind of, you know, thrived off of that and you don't have it anymore, it was definitely, uh, kind of the biggest shock for me. So definitely the, the challenge and always being tested was probably my, the greatest thing about the Marine Corps.
1: It sounds kind of similar to like when I've heard professional athletes or even like college athletes, when they ultimately retire or step away, they, they a lot of them talk about that, like missing element of competition. That's really, uh, or, or maybe not competition, but challenge, like you said, that's really hard to, um, find once you're out of uh, one of those two roles
0: yeah it's so difficult and and like and you know I I don't know if I'll ever find anything that compares to what I did I mean you're you're with guys you're awake for three days planning a mission and then you know you're going to 30,000 feet in an airplane in the middle of the night at 2 a.m. with 350 pounds strapped to your body and you're all jumping out together and you're about to fly 30 miles through the night (laughs) and land and that's just the start of your night you know you just started the day so uh, I don't know if I'll ever find anything that quite scratches that itch, but you know, um, you know, I look forward to trying though. Is there a, is
1: there like a top gun movie for the Marine Corps? Like, is do you have anything like that?
0: You know, it's so funny that you say that because we kind of have the joke that we're like, we're not like the Navy SEALs. Our job is very similar. The one, the, my community is very small. There's only about 850 of us. And, uh, we do very much, pretty much the exact same mission set as the uh, Navy SEALs do for the Navy. We just do it for the Marine Corps. And uh, we always joke that we don't write the books or get the movies made about us like we're the quiet professionals, you know, even though we love the SEALs and camaraderie is great and everything. But we always joke like, no, we don't do it for the glory. You know, we're, we, we prefer staying in the shadows and kind of minding our own business. Yeah.
1: Well, uh, there's, you know, you've got Top Gun, obviously there's probably like 4,000 movies that the seals have had made after them. <laughs> and I'm not finding a whole lot of like force recon, scout, sniper you know, movies
0: or anything like that. Probably the only thing, and it was earlier in the war and it's probably generation kill. It's more, of uh, a, it's, um, it was, it was a great documentary. It's almost, it's pretty much a documentary. Uh, it's obviously a film or a, a short series, but it really dives into the world of the Marine Corps and what we were in the beginning of the war. Oh one, oh two, oh three, um, just kind of gives you a little deep dive into it. But but overall, no, it's it's definitely hard to even encapsulate uh, what it is that we do on film. And I think that's probably been you know a struggle for filmmakers and probably didn't want to take too much of a leap on it.
1: Well, yeah, I've also heard I've I've listened to a few podcasts of a couple guys who real top gun guys in real life since you know top gun obviously is really popular at the moment we're recording this and um, they talk about how difficult it is to take any sort of like actual you know military you know specialty like that and make a movie that's actually accurate and they've talked about like how much it would actually cost to like replicate that and it's almost impossible and they also talked about how a lot of it's actually really quite uh, boring <laughs> for like lack right. of a better word
0: Right. We, we always have these, uh, we, we call them moto videos, you know, motivational videos that we usually make after a deployment or, or whatever, where, you know, it's all these, you know, you can look them up on YouTube, you know, uh, uh, Afghanistan motivational video or whatever. And you're going to see all these like raids and kicking down doors and, <laughs> and doing all these jumping out of airplanes and diving and all these cool missions. When in reality, that's about one percent <laughs> of the job everything else is you know long days and and pretty uneventful evolutions all to lead up to that one percent um, and then obviously for our job as reconnaissance sometimes you don't get to do the you know the the kicking down doors you're just sitting in a bush looking at an objective for 10 days trying to establish a pattern of life so I always joke like I should just do a video of us just staring at the, a leaf with a bug on it for 10, <laughs> 10 hours. <laughs> Cause that's about the extent of it on some of these missions.
1: Yeah, you could try to sell that idea to Netflix. I'm not sure if they'll buy, but you could give it a go. <laughs> yeah, Did you like, just... I, you know, when you were growing up, obviously, you know, I talking to your brother and to you kind of about what, what life was like growing up and into high school, what point for you led you to the Marines? Is it something that you had thought about for a long time? Is it more spur of the moment? Like what was that path like for you?
0: So, um, my grandfather was in world war II. Um, he got a bronze star in the battle of the bulge and, uh, that always fascinated me. And what even fascinated me even more was that that was about as much as we knew of him. Um, he died when my dad was eight years old. And so I obviously never met him. My dad barely knew him. And so he kind of always lived in my mind as this, you know, this hero that I never met. I only saw pictures of him like holding his gun and like, you know, in the, in the middle of a battle or whatever. And, and I always kind of had that, that itch from there, you know, and then honestly when nine 11 happened, um, my dad picked me up from school, I believe. And we're sitting in my living room and I'm watching my dad as we're kind of seeing everything unfold. And my dad was a volunteer firefighter for a very long time. So pr- a very selfless man, uh, you know, servant kind of guy to his community always would always take the shirt off his back to give it to somebody else that needed it more than him. And I am one of the toughest guys I know. I mean, he once held a, a, a car on his shoulder to keep it from smashing a, a mom and her daughter. Um, Like he, he just wore it until they could get some equipment to, to get it uh, jacked up. So like, this is, you know, this is my idol, my dad. And I saw him watching what was happening on the news and kind of getting very emotional, you know, and I'd never seen my dad emotional at that time. And I was in fourth or fifth grade. So this like was a huge impact on me seeing my dad, who I thought was this, this brave. I mean, he is obviously, but seeing him kind of break down and get emotional because he had ended up losing a friend in the world trade center, a former firefighter buddy of his. And, uh, you know, I kind of told myself right then and there, like, I want to get the guys that made my dad feel like this like if there was people that were going to make my dad feel like this like I and 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 did this to us like I kind of want to take a stand against it and and help the people that can't help themselves and I went through high school and like I said I was kind of a knuckle dragger had a little bit of a uh you know chip on my shoulder and you know as I was getting you know I was getting into my senior year I was talking to my brother about playing college ball so I went to a couple of showcases, you know, went to a couple of JUCOs because my grades are kinda up and down. So, you know, I definitely wasn't looking at like a big uh academic school. And then, you know, I finally was just like, you know what? I, I know what I want to do. I don't wanna I don't wanna delay this anymore. I'm gonna I'm gonna join the Marine Corps and you know, it was kind of against my dad and my mom's wishes. They really wanted me to go to school first, or even my brother's wishes, you know, please just go to go to college, get your degree and then go. Um but we were in the height of the the second push in Afghanistan and I was, I was just all about it. And I, I just, I was like, if I'm not going to, if I'm going to do it, I'm just going to do it now. You know, there's no point in delaying it. And uh, you know, I kind of just stayed with those thoughts that I had since since that fourth grade and, and um, you know, always felt this deep patriotic pull. I mean, I love my country. I've, I've always really kind of, you know, looked up to the military and and their professionalism and their ethos and it just drew me right in.
1: And then obviously, you know, once in the Marines, you you didn't really stop there. You know, you mentioned at the, the start of this thing about the idea of um, kind of facing down challenges and, and finding ways to challenge yourself. And obviously, you worked through it. Uh, how long is that process to go from entering the Marines at, what, 18, I assume, right, uh, to becoming a force recon scout sniper?
0: So uh, I walked into the recruiter's office, and it's funny because You know, anytime I walk into a place that that usually has to sell you on something, I already know what I want. You know, I go to a car dealership (laughs) telling them what car I want. Right. Um, I walked in the recruiter's office and said, hey, this isn't going to be a hard sell for you. I want to be a Marine. You don't got to sell me on it. Uh, what's What's the hardest thing you got? And he's like, girl, take it easy there, buddy. Like, you know, I don't even know who you are. He's like, well, recon's the hardest thing. I'm like, all right, let's do that. And um, he's like, Well, hold on, like, you know, get on the pull up bar, see how many pull ups you can do. So I do their little physical fitness test. He said, Okay, yeah, you meet, you definitely meet all the requirements. I said, Yeah, I mean, I just want to be with the guys that are the best, that are going to do the job the best and do it the right way. And he said, Well, these are those guys. So I end up joining, you know, boot camps three months. Then you go to infantry training, which gives you all your basic infantry knowledge, just kind of teaches you how to close with and maneuver on the enemy and operate as an infantry unit. Um, that's a baseline requirement you have to have to go to recon. So we go through that. That's another two and a half, three months. Um, so you're looking at six months already. And then you go into what's called RIP, RIP, which is Recon Indoctrination Platoon. And that was, you know, it really just depended at the time. You're kind of trying to prove yourself and wait for the next class to pick up. So it can be somewhere between, you know, two and five months. And for me, I got hurt. I broke my wrist during the training, tried to go through it, um, ended up, you know, getting put into a medical platoon. Uh, for a few months and then came back. So that was, we're sitting at like six months now that I've been in the Marine Corps waiting to get to this training. Um, I come back, I kind of weaseled my way back. Cause usually once you go to the medical platoon, you don't come back. So I weaseled my way back one day and I'm like, Hey, I'm good. I'm ready to go. And uh, the platoon sergeant at the time just said, Hey man, I'm giving you one shot. You cannot fail. Cause mostly, most of the time you can, you know, recycle or whatever. And, and if you fail an event, he was like, you're not getting any second chances. Like this is your one chance. You know, you better make it all the way through. So I said, absolutely. Let's do it. So we're at about six months in. And then that course itself is three months. Um, so you go through that three months. And then after that graduation of, uh, the basic reconnaissance course, um, which is where you do all your patrolling, all your individual skills, you learn communication, you learn demolitions, you learn patrolling, uh, all your amphibious skills, um, how to, operate small boats, you know, infiltration in and out of the water, like all the basics. Um once you graduate that, you move on to your uh insert schools is what we call them there, insert and uh extract schools. So that's like your military freefall or or skydiving if you will. Um you go through a uh, seer, which is uh it's pretty much like a POW school. They teach you how to like survive behind enemy lines and then how to survive while you're captured. Um So those schools combined is another two months. And then um, you go to dive school, which is another two months, and that's in Panama City, Florida. So I mean, you're looking anywhere between a year and a half to two years before you're fully up and operational going to your first unit.
1: That's a (laughs) trek. Oh my gosh. Uh, Really interesting to hear it, though, the kind of the different challenges of it. I know um, people listening or a lot of us obviously are high school coaches and most people I assume (laughs) listening won't have gone through all of this, but um, I know some guys tend to use um, like war analogies in coaching. um, And I know a lot of us also try not to because sports and war are, are certainly not the same. But you know, you being a, a sniper brought back for me this video that I, I used to show players, and I have showed players still. Um, and I can't remember the exact name of it, but it was uh, these three big leaguers. I know Ian Kinsler is one of them. Uh, it was on YouTube, like back in 2017 or so. Uh, they go to like a, uh, a sniper training program type deal and learn kind of about um, like quieting your heart beat basically and like slowing things down um, and kind of applying that same kind of sniper mentality, I guess, of like what you talked earlier, if you kind of staring at a leaf for 10 hours, right? Just the ability to like slow your mind and your breathing down to prepare yourself for whatever task you're about to face. Um, and so as we start kind of diving into uh, how you made the transition from you know, twelve years in the Marines. To all of a sudden, you're a college baseball coach. Um, I think y- y- people may have already started catching on. There's, there's going to be a lot of similarities between the two, even though they're obviously two very, very different endeavors with very different um, kind of goals behind them. So no, as we kind of dive in, like, what was that transition? So twelve years in the Marines. Now, <clears throat> uh, and then all of a sudden, you're <laughs> a college baseball coach. Right. Take us through that. How did that yeah, happen? It's kind,
0: of, it's kind of funny. Cause you know, you can go back on when I first got the job, uh, my brother posted a tweet or whatever saying like, you know, wow, I can't believe, you know, I never thought this would happen, but my brother just found a way to just create a job for himself and weasel <laughs> baseball. Um, that's pretty, that's pretty much what happened. And, uh, so I got, I got hurt on the deployment in uh, 2020, I fractured four bones in my foot while we were deployed, but, um, I was in a very austere environment. I didn't have a lot of medical support um and obviously this is during uh COVID, so to, for me to get extracted and to get care and to get back it would have been like 3 days just to and then quarantine periods and all this stuff, right? And this was my first deployment as like the leader of my platoon. And so I wasn't I'd be damned if I was just going to leave. So um I ended up continuing to do missions on it for 3 months with four fractured bones in my foot and uh you know, obviously we didn't know they were fractured at the time. I just knew that it hurt really bad. <clears throat> so we get back, I get a CT scan and they say, yeah. So I go through a foot fusion surgery. Um, it was unsuccessful. I tried to recover for a year and then I did another one. And that one was unsuccessful, which kind of got me to December of last year. Well, I, when I got home from that deployment, uh, Coach Ungrich Brock, who's the head baseball coach now at University of San Diego, he was my neighbor or he lived down the street from me. And, uh, as I was recovering, you know, I'm wheeling around on a knee scooter with my daughters, just trying to get some exercise or whatever. And he's always outside with his kids who are almost the exact same age as mine. Um, they're hitting off the tee and doing all these things. And I'm like, well, that's cool. So I go up and I meet him and I'm just like, Hey, you know, this is who I am. And I'm like, yeah. So like, what are you doing? He's like, Oh, I'm the assistant baseball coach at the university of San Diego. I said, Oh, that's, that's awesome. That's, that's really cool. I said, I figured when you're two year olds hitting off the tee, looking like a big leaguer, I figured you were. Involved with baseball somehow. And uh, so I was telling him about kind of just what we, what I was doing in my job. And then he started explaining to me, you know, some of the struggles because he was a pro baller and everything, some of the struggles he used to have as a player and some of the struggles he went through mentally and physically when he was in the box or on the field. And I was telling him, I said, you know, well, hey, I've started a company uh, that trains law enforcement. So I did a lot of my own research into two different real concepts. One was, uh, how to like kind of master the mental aspect of being in a high stress environment and then how to physically build, uh, a motor pathway or whatever for a law enforcement agent. So that would be like drawing their pistol, identifying a threat accurately and being able to employ their weapon system appropriately. And, you know, doing that as fast as we can, being able to build it. Cause if you've never shot a firearm before, it's not something that you can just usually pick up and do very well. Right. Um, So I really wanted to dive into the research on how adults learn and how uh, we could make it more efficient, faster, and more effective for these law enforcement agents to get better at it. And it just took me down this huge rabbit hole of, you know, uh, neural pathway development, neuroscience, and all this research that I was doing and data collection. And um, I told him about all this and I said, you know, Brock, this, this overlaps into baseball. I know it does. I mean, you think about the mechanics of developing a swing or the mechanics of mm-hmm. developing an arm on the mound. I said, I think we can do this faster, more efficiently for you and your guys. And then teaching them the mental aspect of it and how to not only mentally prepare for an evolution, but how to go through it and kind of allow you to just unlock that subconscious potential that you have instead of being conscious in the box and letting them really just go at it. And he said, I'm in, you know. And so I said, great. And this was the, the, the um, season of 2021 when he was still the assistant. And, you know, I, cu- I kept trying to get into the facilities and COVID was just so strict at the time. So we ended up kind of putting it on hold. And then he gets the head gig uh, in July of 21. And he immediately says, hey, man, like all the stuff we talked about, I, I want it still. Let's let's dive into it. So um, we developed a few drills for the hitters, a few drills for the pitchers. Um, and it was a huge success. I mean, these guys were kind of just, the numbers were speaking for themselves. So he's like, let's just keep feeding off of this. And so I kind of did it as like a contractor, if you will, at first, um, for the fall of, of, uh, for the fall of 2021, uh, I just was there kind of part-time helping in and out, you know, showing up, doing team building exercises, mental skill drills, uh, meeting with the players one-on-one, really diving into who they were. Um, as players, and figuring out what I could do to maximize their potential. And then in, you know, December, he was just like, you know what, I want to make it official, let's bring you on staff and be the director of player development. And I had all the time in the world because I was recovering from my injuries. And I said, let's do it. And so we kind of just went full in. And that's, that's how I kind of got my foot in the door where, you know, I just kind of kept picking away and working with the players and working with the staff. So with the players, I work a lot of the mental skills, mental preparation, stress, uh, managing stress and performance anxiety. And then with the staff, more importantly, I work, uh, how to layer our practices, how to layer our drills to where they are more appropriate for the human brain to retain them. So, you know, we don't hit every day. We might hit only two or three times a week, but the way that we layer our hitting and our drills is it's kind of a a logical flow for the uh, the player, and we don't have to do it as much because the effort that we do put in isn't muddled, and they hold on to it a lot longer, and it's retained. Um, and so, just things like that that I kind of streamlined with the staff was was kind of my role uh, going into the twenty two season.
1: All right, so we gotta immediately dive into what you just said. So you guys do not hit every day, in maybe two to three days a week. So can you give me through like an example of maybe like what a player goes through to make that stick? Because obviously any baseball coach listening, probably just like their mind kind of probably, went, wait a second. <laughs> how do you not hit every day? So can you kind of walk me through, like, what is that like for an individual player?
0: Yeah. So, you know, for instance, you know, I kind of just observed in the fall, right. I was only working with the players. Um, and obviously we have a whole new staff, you know, coach Ungrich who did, an, I mean, you couldn't, I couldn't imagine, you know, he's my friend. He's a very close friend of mine. Obviously he's my neighbor. Um, I could never have imagined how successful we could have been, but, you know, we're all kind of figuring it out. He's he's head coach for the first time. Uh, you know, um, everybody in our staff was filling a new role for the first time uh, last year. So I was just kind of observing in the fall, and you know, I, I kind of one day we sat down and I was just like, "Why are we practicing like this? You know, why are we making our practice plans in this order, or why are we doing?" It's like, I mean, these are just things you cover in baseball, and I'm like, I was like, okay, well what if we didn't hit every day? And our volunteer assistant, uh, Ryan Kirby, who just got done uh, doing a stint with the pirates organization. He looks at me like I'm crazy. He goes, Josh, you have to hit every day. And I'm, like, I'm not. I was like, I was like, I don't think you do, Ryan." he's like, Josh, you have to hit every day. And I was like, I was like, okay, just bear with me here. Let's talk about this. Um, I said, what if we build our hitting drills and our hitting execution in a logical flow um, where we didn't have to, and we, the, the hitter doesn't have to do the physical swing all the time. He can get visualization drills in, he can review film, and then we can start layering in the fielding drills very similarly. And as I broke it down, I, you know, it probably took me two or three weeks to build the concept and to build the the calendar for these guys. But eventually, you know, and, and I'm going to pull it up as I'm, as I'm talking to you, but it eventually got to where we would hit on Monday and Tuesday we would have Wednesday as kind of like an off day. Coach Ungerich is very big about giving guys off days and their own time. And now, mind you, this is not in the season. This is still late fall, early spring before the season kicks off. Um, so Coach Ungrich is huge about giving guys a Sunday off and a Wednesday off just to make sure that they you know, have time to do their schoolwork and have time for themselves. Because just like my older brother talked about Coach Robe, I mean, our program is very similar about we're here to build young men and you know, it's not just about baseball. You know, we want to make sure they're fostering a good life outside of baseball as well. And I really respect Coach Ungert for having that approach because it's very easy, especially in your first year to get consumed and wanting to do too much. So like on Monday and Tuesday, we will hit and those drills that we do will will very logically flow. So if, if you want to do, we'll do batting practice in the cages, you know, get warmed up. And then maybe we're doing a uh, bunt defense, but you know, the offense is, is just strictly executing bunting. And then that will that will flow into, you know, base running in bunt defense. And then that'll flow into, you know, you actually doing the execution on defense. So you're kind of always, you're not going to go from like bunt D to pop fly communication because that's not mm-hmm. a logical flow because no one in a game is going to go from, you know, you're not going to go from that bunt D, you know, it's, he's not going to do a pop-up to shortstop executing a bunt. So for us, it was, hey, let's, Let's learn how to kind of layer it that way, because there's two ma- there's one major issue that a lot of people have as as coaches or instructors, and it's they always want to give you as much information as possible, and that usually muddles the brain right it gives you you're given you know especially you look at uh you know private lessons or whatever hey, I got one hour with this kid, I want him going home telling his parents he got a hundred different things to mm-hmm. use well, in reality, you're not that is so bad for that player as far as He's not going to retain any of that knowledge. He, his short-term memory will hold on to it for you know maybe 24 to 48 hours, which will look like it he progressed, and that's kind of the trick to it. But in reality, he's not going to hold on to that for longer than a week. Um, and so we did the same exact thing, except we layered it to where, hey, we're only working on anything that has to do with a bunt today. And then tomorrow, we're only working on anything that has to do with pop fly communication. And today we're only working on things that has to do with stealing and so forth and so on. Instead of doing a whole practice that covers everything you can do in a game, we kind of broke it down into the segments of what happens in a game. And then we had our analytics guy, Ryan Farron, break down for us. Hey, I want you to tell me exactly what occurs the most in our games. You know, like how often does somebody, uh, you know, run a first and third play on us? It's like uh they do it 2 times out of the last 570 attempts. It's like right. All right, well, maybe first and third shouldn't be 80% of our practice. It should be 2% yeah. of our practice. You know, so we kind of took that approach and identified what's going to win us the ball game, like based off of analytics and also based off of how what our strengths and weaknesses were as a team and then what we could develop the players on the field.
1: I'm just thinking about how you mentioned, Kyle, your brother a second ago, and the idea that you know he's been coaching for a long time, and then here you are uh, in the Marines for 12 years, and then all of a sudden you, you live next door to a guy, and then now you're a, a college baseball coach. And in your guys' first year as a brand new staff and everything, um, kind of a cool local connection for me. You guys ended up making it to the regionals. Of course, you come up here and play in Corvallis, which is about 30 minutes south of where I'm sitting right now. Um, And in game one, you beat Vanderbilt, you know, one of the most storied baseball programs um, there is essentially in in college. And so what has that been like for you guys just as a program and as a staff and just kind of to help you um, see that what you're doing is actually kind of working?
0: I mean, it was unbelievable. I, I, I could, you know, I knew it was possible and I always joked with coach Unrich when he brought me on, I say, Hey, I only, I only like to win coach. Cause I told him, I said, I teach a lot of these mental skills stuff, but I said, I work really hard to make sure I don't lose, you know, because in my job, you know, in my former job for the last 12 years, there was no losing, right? You lose and you're, you're having to go tell a, a wife or a mom, you know, that you, you didn't, you know, maybe you didn't do the job the best you could and their son or husband didn't come home. And so I always told him that I said, you know, I prepare hard enough and strong enough to make sure that we don't get put in that position, right. To where we always will win or find a way to win. And that was always his, I mean, he's that same guy. I mean, he's a fierce competitor and uh, you know, our, our personalities really just were, you know, matched up really well in that um, in that environment. So Going through the season, doing the ups and downs. I mean, we couldn't imagine. You take three out of four starting the year off against Oregon. I mean, that was just. That's when we all looked at each other and we said, "Oh, it's on. It's it's go time. Like we've got we've got what it takes. Sorry, we got what it takes to uh, to execute this. Let let's let's see where we can really push our guys to another level. And what I love about Coach Ungerich is, you know, he loves front loading non conference schedule like as hard as he can possibly do. Like he's trying to get anybody that was in a regional the year before to be in the beginning of our season, just to test our guys, to see, Hey, how good are we really? Like it's better to know now than to sugarcoat our season and find out in a regional that we're just not that good. And we're going to get blown (laughs) up, you know, (laughs) because, you know, we're playing in the WCC. So there's a lot of good schools and it's hard to win, but you know, when you get put into a regional and now you're facing SEC teams or power five schools, you know, you don't want to get caught off guard and not knowing that you can perform against these guys until that day. So, I love that he <clears throat> has that chip on his shoulder, and he he puts that that schedule together, and he builds the hardest schedule for our guys just to put them in the fire to test them and to see what they're going to do. And so for them and for us to to continue to succeed, I mean, we would have we you know we took the series against Oregon. In my opinion, we should have taken the series against DBU. One of our one of our really good yeah. players, our right fielder Angelo Peraza, he's coming around third in the bottom of the ninth, and he pulls his hamstring, and he can't score the tying run. And that would have been, you know, one out with man at second and third. And I'm feeling pretty good about us walking that off. And, you know, he, he, you know, he tears his hamstring, God bless him. And so I feel like we take that series and then we go to GCU and we take that series. And it was just like, man, here we go. Like we're rolling. And, you know, the guys are handling it really well. And, you know, this is something where, you know, we can continue to push the envelope with these guys because they can handle it. And, you know, sure enough, they just kept going and going and, you know, obviously you got Gonzaga at the end of the year that you're just kind of, everybody's waiting on and, you know, you get to it and they ended up taking the series against us at home in the regular season. And I think that was probably the best thing that could have happened for us because the next week we go face them again at the uh, WCC uh, conference tournament. And, you know, we go four and zero in that tournament. And that just shows the, the, you know, the our guys' ability to overcome adversity saying, Hey, you just took two or three against us to take the regular season from us at home, but guess what? Like we're not done. We're not going to sleep and we're going to come out and, and attack you guys. And and they did. And, and we couldn't have been prouder and, and, and more impressed with our guys and their abilities.
1: Well, yeah. So you got overcoming adversity, uh, just thinking of, of your career in the Marines, you've got um, obviously coming back from injuries. You've got, like we mentioned all the boring time you have um, challenging yourself, being able to perform when you maybe don't feel your best. So obviously lots of overlap between sports and, um, the military uh, baseball in particular is a really interesting one. I, I think because I'm thinking like in basketball, right? If I miss a three or, if, you know, I make some mistake, I don't have time to think about it because we're immediately like back on defense. Here we go. And baseball is really different in that respect, obviously, because there is so much for lack of a better term, like wait time, right? So if you, you make an error, you make a mistake, or you even just, you know, pop out to end an inning or whatever. Um, there's a lot of time that you're sitting around and just waiting And there's no guarantee that a ball is going to be hit to you to help clear your mind or anything like that. So there's just so much waiting involved in it. So as uh, mental skills and, you know, obviously looking back at your time in the Marines as well, um, when you looked into baseball and you tried to make that transition from your previous career to coaching, um, how did you try to go about working with players in like, baseline testing or just baseline mental skills training? Like what was that starting point like for you?
0: Yeah. Well, you know, luckily for me, you know, my platoon and and young Marines are between the ages of 18 and 25. Right. So I wasn't unaccustomed to working with this age group and I know what this age group is capable of. Right. I was an instructor as well at one point in my career and I pushed these guys, you know, my recon students, you know, to the, to the, you know, to the limits and further. Right. So, I knew going in that these guys are probably more capable than even our coaches thought, you know, cause I've seen what the human body and human mind is capable of. So I said, you know, we're going to go in here and I just want to see what, what these guys specifically are made of. So we did uh mid fall, we did a team building exercise. Um, I got them at the field at 5. AM and uh, it's still dark. And I just started immediately kind of, I, and, and, you know, it's kind of weird because I have like kind of two different personalities, my baseball coach and personality, and then obviously who I was as a Marine. And so I kind of let the Marine personality come out for that day just for, just to really drive home the, maybe the stress levels or whatever. So, you know, they're all, they're all sitting in the clubhouse. Nobody's late. And I'm like, okay, that's good. And, uh, you know, I just wanted to immediately mess with their, you know, their mind and they're all wearing the exact same thing, you know, Navy t-shirt, Navy shorts. And I said, you guys are all in the wrong uniform. You're supposed to be in Navy blue or, uh, in in uh, baby blue shirts. I said, you got one minute to get your shirt on and to get outside of center field. Let's go. And so they're just automatically, they're just like, what is going on? Like we're all dressed <laughs> the same. We have no idea what's going on. So I kind of just, you know, stepped on the stress button just a little bit by making them change their shirt, you know, see, okay, how well they're going to handle changing their shirt and running out to center field with their chairs, uh, to set up. And, um, you know, I get them out there and, you know, one of our team rules is shaving. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, I said, uh, you know, who hasn't shaved today and nobody says anything because it's completely pitch black dark and we're all circled up in the outfield and, you know, no one says anything. So I turn on my f- my light on my phone and I go up to the first guy and I point it at his face and all of a sudden, you know, 15 hands go up. <laughs> everybody, <laughs> I, I haven't shaved, I haven't shaved. I said, you got, five, you got five minutes to go shave. I said, everybody else, you know, we're going to hold a squat position or whatever until, you know, these guys get back. So now I'm putting the pressure on them to hurry up so that way everybody else doesn't suffer. So I'm just kind of, you know, you know, again, just add a little bit more stress to see how these guys, um, how these guys handle it. And, uh, you know, we go through a couple of evolutions and then I start making them do some team stuff. Um, you know, we did some, uh, some buddy drills where, you know, they had like a four man team and they got to carry a guy around the, you know, the baseball field, but you know, the first iteration, they're not allowed to talk at all. Um, and whoever wins doesn't have to do, you know, the punishment or whatever it is. And then the second, the second iteration, like there was about to be one leader. So I'd see like who that leader was going to be like, Hey, who are my emergent leaders on the team who wanted to step up and be the leader, the guy that could talk and kind of coordinate. And then the last evolution would be like, okay, everybody can talk. Like, let's see who the guys that kind of caused the most trouble by trying too much or, you know, disagreeing with the group. So, you know, we did maybe 15 or 16 different evolutions that day, just so I could kind of get an idea of who handled it well. Who handled it poorly? Who kind of broke down? Um, and who were those emergent leaders that kind of when the things were uncertain, like all baseball athleticism aside, you know, it's not the guy that's hitting 390. That's easy to be that leader. I want to know who the guy was when things are completely uncertain. What's going to happen next? How far we're running? What we're doing? Who wants to take charge and say, yeah, I'll be the leader of this group. So I really did that to get a good baseline understanding of of who our team was and what we were capable of.
1: When you looked at, obviously, training stress, you've you've got those ways certainly work out pretty well. What do you do to help them kind of figure out how to quiet things down um, when those those big stressful situations do come up throughout sports? Um, Obviously, being quieter or slowing your heartbeat or whatever the saying might be um, does a lot of good for guys. So what did you do to kind of help them learn how to control the moment?
0: Yeah, so – and this is a long – this is a long process, right? There is no voodoo trick. You can slow your heart rate down and you can do things, but to truly get your mind to kind of go into that flow state, it takes a lot of work, right? And it takes a lot of foundational development that is really on the coach and 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 how he develops his players because you know, like I kind of talking to your audience, the high school coaches that are listening, I firmly believe that it is very hard to teach the mental aspect of the game in high school. I believe that should be very physically focused because in order for you to perform subconsciously at a task, you have to be, you have to perfected it uh, physically, right? So my best example that most people can relate to is driving a car. You know, you wouldn't ask a kid who's doing his driver's ed test for the first time to call his mom and have a serious conversation, right? Like he'd be overwhelmed. He wouldn't be able to think about both. He'd he be freaking out or he pull over or whatever but if you have a guy that's 55 years old who's you know putting you know taco sauce on his taco bell while talking to his his wife and he's he's driving with his knee and he's going 90 down the highway like he can do all these different things but the main thing he's doing is driving but he can now drive pretty subconsciously without a lot of thinking and and he can do other stuff right so i kind of you got to kind of take that approach to baseball and athletics in general is has the person perfected the skill yet? If they haven't perfected the skill, maybe they're not ready to be subconscious in the box or subconscious on the field. Um, now, obviously, I still want them to be calm, but to to perform in that flow state, you're really not ready until you physically mastered the game. Now, going into the you know our athletes, you know, hey, you're a D1 college baseball player, like you're you're probably pretty good, or you're at a, probably a ninety percent solution to your physical abilities. Um, let's start mastering the mental game. And a lot of that is preparation. Uh, everything in life comes with experience, right? The first time I jumped out of an airplane, I don't remember a darn thing. I was, all I remember is how scared I was, you know, but then you do it a thousand times and now I'm jumping out of an airplane thinking about what my heading is, what my mission is, you know, where I'm going, where all my guys are, you know, I can think about all these different things, but it comes with exposure and it comes with experience. So for what what I like to do is I really have the guys go into deep visualization drills and I always have them think up the wildest scenarios they can in their head to kind of give themselves a mental idea of what they're going to do and how they're going to handle it when it occurs. And I really do this with pitchers. Um, I always tell my pitchers and I say, Hey, if you're ever surprised by something that happens on the field, I have failed you and you have failed yourself in your preparation. You sh- even as a starting pitcher, I remember the first, uh, my first experience, you know, uh, the year we were playing Oregon, that first game and Garrett Rennie was our starter. And, you know, I noticed immediately, like he's on a completely different schedule. He comes in whatever he wants. He does whatever he wants in pregame. No one talks to him. It's like this, this like voodoo of don't talk to the don't talk. Sorry about that. Don't talk to the head or the the pitcher that day. So I said, that's, that's bogus. You know, I walked right into the clubhouse and, uh, I sat down next to him. I said, Hey, what's up? He said, hey, how you doing? And I said, hey, you know what, you know what I want you to do in this hour leading up to the game? He said, what's that? I said, I want you to think about failing. I said, I want you to think about this game going about as worse as it could go for you. I want you to think about you throwing your first pitch and it being a home run over the over the wall. And I want you to look at that runner as he's rounding the bases. And I want you to think about how you feel. And then I want you to think about how you're going to overcome that. Start preparing yourself now mentally on how, what you're going to do to reset what you're going to do to get yourself back and and use what tools you're going to use to overcome that adversity and that mental stress because if you wait until you're out there to figure it out it ain't going to happen buddy you ain't going to figure it out on the mound one of my one of my bosses who is a I do mean, as a war hero he used to always say in combat you are never going to rise to the occasion you're always going to fall to your lowest level of training so if if you don't prepare for that mental adversity before the game even starts how in the heck can you expect yourself to execute it while you're on the mound? Or if you just got done striking out, how are you going to reset and find a way to be successful the next outcome? You know, that's, that's really what I challenge them. So I make them think a lot about failure. I make them accept it, understand it's a part of the game, and then learn how to work through it um, and get through those emotions so they can, so they don't let their emotions drive how they perform. Um, so that's, that's one of the biggest steps. And then we have all these different drills. Um, I like to do drills with the hitters where they, it's a, it's two hitters versus one uh, versus a pitcher. Right. And they have to communicate constantly with each other on what's going on. So for instance, if it was me and you, Max, I get the first pitch and then he gets 10 second break and you get the second pitch. So mm-hmm. we're just going back and forth, trying to figure out how to get a hit or how to get a quality of bat against this pitcher. And it kind of forces you to talk out loud your strategy with the other guy. And it makes you kind of figure out where each other's at in their head. Like how, 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 how open is their brain during this process? You know, are they actually trying to figure out how to beat this pitcher or are they just going internal when they get in the box? So I do things like that just to kind of gauge where they're at. And then every person's mental ability different. So I really work with them. I do a lot, I mean, hours and hours and hours of dinners and breakfasts and coffee and Jamba juice and just talking to them one-on-one figuring out what tools they need to be successful because like for me i used to love the stress of an environment you know I at sniper school you got to shoot at a thousand yards you got to hit four out of five targets and you know some guys don't like to know how many targets they have to hit you know and I'm like tell me I want to know I want to feel that jittery feeling of oh god I gotta do this um but i enjoy that and i thrive in that moment some guys don't so you got to kind of play into that hand of, okay, well, this guy likes to be calm. He doesn't like to kind of have a little bit of higher of a heart rate and and f- uh, fuel off the adrenaline. So knowing that about your players and being able to tailor those different drills and those tools is huge as it for the individual.
1: You're kind of throwing a lot of the stuff that I've read and learned on its head. And as you're doing it, I'm kind of like nodding my head. Like that actually makes a lot of sense. Specifically, you're talking about like um, – Visual visualization, right? Everything I've read and taught, honestly, has been the opposite of that, right? Where you're like, hey, you know, Josh, you know, visualize yourself having success. You know, visualize that first pitch being a beautiful like slider to start the game on the inside corner. Your strike one, and visualize all that stuff. But then, as you said that of how like you you should be, maybe not everybody, but you should be visualizing failure and how you're going to then, you know, you talk about seeing the guy rounding the bases and then how you're going to overcome that in your mind. Um, That makes a lot of sense because if I'm, if I'm only visualizing success, right. Then when I'm in the game and I give up that home run or whatever the sport might be, and I don't have the success, like all of a sudden all my training for that day is thrown out the window. And like, how do I react to that?
0: No, exactly. And, and, You know, I, I agree. I I read, I read a lot of probably the same books you read and I, and I saw the, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the positive visualization, but then I thought back on my years of training and almost every training exercise we ever did, something always goes wrong, right? They force it to, right? This guy gets shot, you know, this guy loses a leg or, you know, you get ambushed here. What are you going to do? And it forces you to always think about the worst case scenario and how you're going to work through it, you know? Um, And, and, you know, we kind of, this gets built into guys like me, you know, I'm I'm sitting at a baseball game at Petco Park and I think, oh God, if the worst thing in the world happened right now, and there's a shooter from this high rise, how am I going to get my family out of here? You know, Mm. like who thinks about that, but now I know what I'm going to at least do. And I don't have to think about it when it does happen. So I kind of took that training that we did and brought it to baseball and was just like, kind of, you know, my brother brought it up in the podcast that he did. And it's the practices should be the hardest thing that you do. And the game should be the easy, the game should be where the success comes out. And if you do have a little bit of failure, then we've already been through it and it's not a surprise and we're ready to push through it. And it's really, it's just a speed bump. The vehicle's not stopping. It's just slowing down a little bit. So uh, absolutely. Like I, I, I don't disagree with positive visualization. I really don't, um, especially in game. Um, because that's where, you know, I, I, I kind of break down mental preparation and obviously the pregame, uh during the game and then post game or post the event um and and how you're going to kind of get through it and definitely in game I want you to visualize uh success when you're on the when you're in the on deck circle I want you thinking about the pitch that you saw last at bat I want you prepared for you know success you know read the field what read what the game's telling you to do and, you know understand what our strategy is and then visualize success in that moment but definitely you know if you've never thought about it in pregame or whatever the, uh, you know the, the consequences of failure then then we're not doing the right thing
1: you mentioned post game so how do your kind of wh- what's the
0: strategy post game when you're thinking about this stuff so i usually talk to guys especially pitchers right as soon as they come off the mound especially starters i'm talking mm-hmm. to them immediately i sit down next to them and i say hey what are we feeling uh, what did you think happened how do you think you could have done better and I'm, I'm constantly logging it whether or not it was a seven inning uh, parents with one hit, no earned runs. Like, I want to know what tools they used. I want to know what they felt. Uh, and I want to know how they either overcame it or how they failed. And uh, and then we document that to be able to use it for the next time. Because one of my biggest things that I did during games, obviously, uh, directors of player development, you can't you know participate in any strategy or tactics uh, in college baseball. You know, you're not allowed to shift runners or you know, determine strategy or whatever. That's, it's kind of one of the rules, right? So uh, for me, one of my biggest things in game is reading the, the body language of our players. I see, you know, and that's something I was trained to do in the military. I kind of read that body language and I say, hey, this guy's struggling. Or if a kid comes back and wants to slam his helmet or slams his bat, I'm immediately going over to him and we're correcting it. And we're finding a positive way to get through that mental adversity. So I'm kind of doing the same thing post game I'm figuring out. I kind of take my log during game of who, who looked like they struggled, who had some adversity, and uh, and then we communicate about it and we talk about why it failed or what we could have done better. And really, it just it's usually just comes down to acceptance, right? It's closure. How can I get these guys to closure as fast as possible to have them moving on to the next thing? Because these guys want to hang on to it. Man, I went over three today, and then their weekend's ruined because they can't they can't close the door on that failure. And so, you know, they let it fester when in reality, I'll, I'll sit them down. We'll talk about the good things that happened. We'll talk about why they went over three. We'll talk very fact-based. I don't like to talk about emotions, um, a whole lot because I don't think because emotions and the chemicals that you release when you're emotional kind of muddle again, the, the brain and what, and how you perceive, perceive reality. So I like to look at like what's fact-based. I say, hey, man, you know, a kid comes back, throws his helmet, which first of all, you'll only do that once in front of me or Coach Unger jar our because that <laughs> stuff gets nipped real quick. But I'll tell him, hey, man, why did you strike out? I don't know, man. Like umpire, was back called I'm like, how mm-hmm. about it was a good pitch? How about he just beat you? Is that fair to say? Like, yeah, I mean, he did beat me. It's like, okay, well, that's a fact that happened. Hey, you were sitting fastball and it was a breaking pitch, right? Yes. Okay, well, we know how to – we know how to fix that so it's okay like let's let's go fix that based off the facts that we do have not about how you're feeling about it and let's move on how about you go tell the next guy up what you saw tell him talk to him as if you had to go right back in the box how, what would you tell yourself you need to be communicating that stuff to your team and not worrying about how you feel because i always tell guys i go do you think anybody in here thinks you're a tough guy slamming your bat do you think anybody on this team thinks like oh man he's upset i'm i'm so glad we have him on our team like, no, no one likes that guy. Like, find a way to win. Let's let's get back and locked in and get mentally reset and find a way to beat that guy the next time out.
1: Yeah, when you have guys that do that, that throw their helmet and stuff, a lot of times I think it comes from like this feeling of I have to show like my teammates that I care, and maybe the the best way to do that is to have this huge you know public display of of anger, frustration, whatever it is. And you're right, man. Like as a teammate, whenever I had teammates, or even as a coach had a player who would kind of respond that way it just made you not want to like even be around that guy like you just i don't know what the right word is but just like a huge amount of annoyance maybe of just like i don't want to be around this dude this dude's not here for the right reasons um and so kind of taking that out of a player as soon as possible is a good deal and turning into something positive makes a lot of sense as well when you talk about like um going over three and stuff like that. Obviously in baseball, there's you guys have used the word slump, right? For a long time of, you know, I'm 0 for 20 or something like that. Or, you know, Mike Trout's over his last 26 or things like that. And um, it's really easy. I think for us to sit there and be like, well, you know, just don't let your emotions be a part of it it and be fact-based. But the reality for a player is obviously a lot deeper than that. And no matter how mentally strong, maybe you are, those thoughts and feelings still creep in. So did you at any point this season have a player that, that went through kind of a prolonged period of time, or maybe they didn't have maybe a lot of of success on the field in terms of statistics. Cause obviously you can have success and hit 20 line drives and get them all caught. Um, What was that like if you had any parts like that this year?
0: Yeah, we did. And I won't name names just for the kid's sake, but um, yeah, he, this kid was started off. I think we, he was hitting three thirty for like, the first month or a half of the season, uh, I mean, he was just killing it, right? And then, you know, started experiencing a couple games of, you know, not having a lot of success. And I hate the slump, the slump saying. I I think that's an excuse. (laughs) I think that is a – it's an excuse that the baseball world isn't accepted as an excuse. It's like one of the only excuses people accept it. Oh, he's in a slump. Like, he'll come out of it. It's part of baseball. It's like, no, it's not. (laughs) There's nothing different that's happening. The ball's coming at the hitter he needs to put the bat on the ball. It's as simple as that, right? Like there is no slump here. Don't, don't let your mind think you're in the slump. And then you have to hit this magical number of like, Oh, once I'm over 20 or 30, like I'll break it. I'll get a base hit. Or I'm, I, I'm like, no, you know, we're, we're out of that mindset. So I I went back to his notes. Cause I took notes on him when he was successful. We met a lot while he was successful. And I just went back to, Hey man, look at what you said, why you were successful earlier in the year you anchored yourself to your routine. So for him he he liked to do, you know, two breaths before he went to the uh before he left the on deck circle, he'd drag his uh, toes, you know, three times in the turf before he got to the on deck circle or to the to the box. You know, he would, you know, do the thing with his bat, he he take a deep breath. He'd think about his um, you know, his positive uh word that he used and then he would get in the box and he would just go ahead and execute, right? And so when I asked him, I said, "What are you doing these days?" and he 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 couldn't say that. And so we kind of just brought him back to what he anchors himself to when he was successful. How did he, what was he anchoring himself to before he got into the box? Um, and sometimes that changes, you know, it's not always successful. So I like to do, especially in the game. And like you said, baseball's so slow. So the biggest thing that I do is I distract him. I find a hundred different ways to distract a guy, uh, whatever, whatever works for them. You know, I'll have them, you know, do math going from the on-deck circle into the, into the box. Like, Hey man, you're going to multiply one times two and then two times three and then three times four and then four times five until you get into the box and you go through your whole routine while you're doing math. And then as soon as that pitcher gets into his first windup, you can stop doing your math and you can go ahead and just see white, hit white. Or I'll say, Hey, try to find, you know, the cutest girl in the stands or, you know, (laughs) find ways. Or I say, Hey, try to read the wind. Try to try to figure out you know what direction the wind's going and how fast it's going while you're going from the on deck circle uh, to the box. Anything I can do to keep them from not thinking about I got to get a hit or letting the environment take over. Like I said, some guys they're just they're like me where I want to know that the bases are loaded, there's two outs, and I have to perform. Like I, I feed off of that, and that's where I that's where I'm comfortable. And then there's some guys that that overwhelms them, and we have to find a way to distract them. And so you know usually with a hitter. And, you know, for this guy specifically, it was, it was mental. It's usually mental, physical, or emotional. That's usually one of the three things they're dealing with when they're quote unquote slumping. Right. So for me, you know, I kind of break down like, Hey, are you thinking, are you thinking about your mechanics too much? Like, is it a physical thing where, Hey, I'm, I'm trying to feel my hands or I'm trying to think about, you know, getting my elbow to this spot or getting my load or getting into launch here. Like, are you thinking about in the box? Like, yeah, I am. It's like, okay, we'll stop. You know, you can't, the ball comes at you at a 93 mile an hour fastball at 0.42 seconds. You ain't thinking about where your elbow is and then also hitting the ball. So just stop doing that. Um, and, uh, so we kind of break down if he's thinking mechanically, is he emotional? Is he, is he getting overwhelmed in the box? How we can, uh, conquer that. And then obviously the mental aspect of it, he's just, he's just thinking too much, right? He's, he's caught up in the moment. He's he's, he's guessing, or, you know, he's just overwhelmed by, you know, his slump or maybe a fight he got in with his girlfriend the night before or whatever. Um, and, and we just find ways to simplify it. Some guys I just say, Hey, see white hit white. And while that pitcher's in his windup, I just want you saying white, 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 white. And as soon as you see white, let your body react to it. Like, don't, don't get too caught up in, in, you know, what's going on around you or what the count is. Like if you're over 20, man, and I told Coach Ungertich, and he'll probably he'll probably roll his eyes at me, but I'm like, I don't care what the approach is. Like, I don't care if we're in, <laughs> you know, we're, we're you know, we have this strategy going on. Let this kid just see white, hit white, and just hopefully he can do something with it because right now he's just too sped up and he just needs to simplify the game. So we'll we'll do things like that with guys. And sure enough, that kid kind of the next game he went three for four. You know, yeah, he, he I think he was a triple shy of the cycle, and it was just like you know, I really didn't do anything except remind him of what his anchor points were. You know, that's the thing about, you know, coaching and I, you know, it's easy to try to take credit, but it's really just reminding guys of what they do to be successful. Um, and, and I just kind of gave him his anchor points again. And he was just like, all right, let's go for it. And, and I always tell him I was like, "What's the worst that could happen, dude? You went over five last game. Like that was embarrassing. What else could? What you can't possibly get more embarrassing." And I kind of <laughs> mess with him that way. And he's like, "Well, that's true. You know, I guess it's like you ain't gonna go over six unless we go into extra innings. So how about you just go up there and keep it simple and have some fun and and you know, no one really cares, you know, what you're doing because you can't get any worse." So <laughs>
1: That's awesome. I got got one more thing I want to ask you. I'm going to toss a word at you first and then I'll kind of follow up with the actual question. Um, So the word's breathing. And I kind of uh, have an idea of where you might go with this just based on where the conversation has taken us so far. But one of the very traditional ways of like approaching um, kind of the mental side of baseball has been the idea of breathing, right? Of like we talked about before, kind of slowing your heart rate down, connecting to your breaths and being very focused on breathing um, to kind of like, um, I don't know, slow the game down. Right. And so, um, I want to throw this one at you and just kind of see where, where you are with this. Do you find that to be, um, something you use or are you going in, in different directions?
0: No, I do. I firmly believe in breathing. Um, now it's all about timing. Okay. So, you know, again, I'm not going to name names, but Mm -hmm. I've heard of a coach that would make his guys, you know, do box breathing or, breathing drills like on the bus before they got off the bus to go on the field or, or whatever. And I'll tell you, breathing is crucial, you know, and we used to do drills where you'd have to like run with your rifle and your pack and you'd go like, you'd have to sprint a half a mile and then, you know, get down into the prone position and slow your heart rate down. And you have to shoot a target in like five seconds or whatever. Right. So you got to be able to master your breathing and find a way because your heartbeat will actually show up in a scope on a rifle. It'll like actually move you know, all the blood pumping into your veins actually makes the rifle move. So if you can't control your, your heart rate, then, then your rifle moves and it's a lot harder to be accurate on a shot. So taking that same approach and it's the same thing before I jump out of an airplane or do anything, right. It's, I always do box breathing, which is, uh, I breathe in for five seconds. I hold it for five seconds. I breathe out for five seconds. And I'll usually do that about five times. And I, I usually have our guys start their box breathing while they're, um, um, while they're in the hole about to go on deck. And then while they're on deck and then they should be done with their box breathing somewhere mid at bat from the last guy. And then take one more good long, deep breath um, while right before they get in the box. And the thing again, with breathing and the biggest thing is timing and how you're doing it. If you're not breathing from your diaphragm and really like, it should almost hurt when you take a deep breath, it should hurt. If you're just doing like a, that's not, that's not breathing. You're not actually doing anything. And if anything, you're actually making it worse because you're increasing the uh, carbon dioxide in your blood and you're not oxygenating your blood. So you're not calming your heart down. You're just about to hyperventilate. So <laughs> when you take good deep breaths coming from your diaphragm and really feel it in your chest and then you let that out, that really over oxygenates your blood and gives you more of a crisp uh, visual and like a crisp mind. Like you, if you do it right, you should almost get lightheaded. And then you take a normal breath and you're like, boom, you're locked in. So timing of it, you know, if, if you're a player in the field doing it right before you take the field, um, or if you're a pitcher doing it, you know, you know, right after you throw your last warm up pitch, being able to time it the right way and then breathing the right way is just, is, is those are the two crucial things to actually making it successful and applying the science of why it's successful, um, to the, to the, uh, to the drill. All right, man. I
1: appreciate you so much for coming on here. I, I more so obviously appreciate the 12 years you spent in the Marines defending our country and just being a general badass and in, in probably every respect for it. Uh, before I let you go, just wanted to give the mic back over to you one more time. And I don't know if there's anything we missed, anything you wanted to say or shout out or thank, I don't know, whatever it might be, just kind of hand the mic over to you one last time.
0: Yeah, I appreciate it. Again, I, thank you so much for having me on. Um, you know, I as I transition into this world of athletics and I obviously I work with my brother, Kyle, who's a high school coach on a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, definitely just to put it out there to all the other coaches that may be listening, like I'm always open to wanting to, to work with anybody to really deep dive into what you do or deep dive into what I do and find the failures or the errors in our ways and, and really overcome them. So, you know, I definitely would like to invite anybody that hears this to, to reach out to me on Twitter or, you know, my emails on our USD website. I mean, at any time I'm always down to, to constantly learn and to, to help somebody that I can maybe give a tidbit to. So, you know, I'm always available 24 seven to, to do that kind of stuff because I really care about human beings and I care about players and I care about development and it's something I'm definitely passionate about. So just kind of throwing an open invite to anybody that hears this to really reach out and, you know, learn from each other. And then again, just couldn't thank coach Ungrich enough or, you know, kind of taking that blind faith on a guy that has <laughs> right. no athletic experience in the in the college world, and saying, "Hey, man, let's 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 put you in front of a team and see what you can do." Uh, and you know, I, I give all of the you know my you know little bit of success that I've had in this field, I give all the credit to him because you know he's really the one that took the chance and said, "Let's go with this," and and he really gave me a lot of free reins to to just trust me and do what I do, and and I think we had a lot of success uh, doing it. So. Thanks to the University of San Diego and Coach Youngrich and and all the the staff for mentoring me through this year of what college baseball is, and then allowing me to kind of put in my niche to help us, you know, be successful, in a conference tournament. But again, Max, I, I appreciate you having me on. This has been an honor, and and uh, you know, I saw that email or that DM, and I, I immediately lit up, and I'm like, absolutely, let's do it.
1: <laughs> well, I think you're on the the cutting edge of some of the mental skills side of things that um, baseball, obviously, it's become much more. Um, Uh, I don't know the doors wide open now for mental skills into baseball, where it maybe wasn't 10, 20, 15 years ago, somewhere in there. But I think you're on the cutting edge of kind of turning the corner to the next chapter of it with a lot of things you mentioned here, not just helping the guys at San Diego, but, but lots of people around the country who want to kind of open their minds to it. So yeah, thank you big time uh, for coming on here and, and just kind of blowing the doors open for that and appreciate you a ton. And I hope you enjoy the rest of your stay over there in Lake Tahoe.
0: Awesome. Thanks, Max. Look forward to our next conversation.
1: josh did not disappoint what a phenomenal story he's lived up to this point with some exciting work still left to be done i can just imagine a book or a course or something down the line that people could really take a lot from if josh wanted to make it happen Uh, i've tossed his contact info down in the show notes for anyone who wants to take him up on his offer to help out you or your program if you aren't signed up for the weekly newsletter or if you haven't picked up some high school coaches club stickers you should definitely do so head on over to highschoolcoachesclub.com to get started don't forget to leave a rating or a review if you're listening on apple podcasts and hit that subscribe button no matter where you're listening in from most importantly though if you found any value at all from this episode or any previous episode please share this on social media to your followers via email to your fellow coaches or through the old-fashioned word of mouth it doesn't matter how you do it just find a way to bring a few more listeners in who might benefit That's how we all get better. And that's how we grow the club. Huge fist bump to coach Mickles for jumping on the call with me. Thanks again to netting pros for sponsoring the episode and to you for clicking that play button. If you have any recommendations for people who should be guests on the show, be sure to reach out to me. Even if that recommendation is you follow the club on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook at HS coaches club. You can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Max price and can reach me via email. Max at highschoolcoachesclub.com. All right, that's it. That's all I got. You're awesome. You matter. Thanks for all you do. And as Coach Lee would say, loving
0: you.